0: Welcome to Spark My Muse, this is Lisa DeLay, and you're listening to Soul School Lesson 135, The Last Word on Vengeance. Today I'm gonna be reading from the very insightful book by Brian Zond, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, The Scandalous Truth of the Very Good News. This is actually a book that my husband's reading in a men's book club at church, and I've been wanting to get my hands on this book for a long time and actually interview Brian here. But since I got a chance to get this book in this fashion, I decided to read some of it today and talk about something very interesting about how we've tended to think of God. Many of us have tended to think of God and how Jesus puts the final word on what God is like. And Jesus as the Messiah can make determinations about who is going to receive God's wrath and vengeance. And sometimes there are people who we believe deserve the wrath of God and the vengeance of God, and we cannot wait for God to pick them off or take them down. But Jesus' approach is very strange and different and unique, and it almost gets him killed in his hometown of Nazareth. So I'm going to start reading and doing some reflection on this excerpt of this book, Very provocative, compelling book by Brian Zond, and I'll have links to uh, the book in the show notes and on the website sparkmymuse.com for this episode, Soul School 135. I'm going to begin from page 31. Even a casual reader of the Bible notices that between alleged divine endorsement of genocide in the conquering of Canaan and Jesus's call for love of enemies in his Sermon on the Mount, something has Clearly changed. What has changed is not God, but the degree to which humanity has attained an understanding of the true nature of God. The Bible is not the perfect revelation of God. Jesus is. Jesus is the only perfect theology. Perfect theology is not a system of theology. Perfect theology is a person. Perfect theology is not found in abstract thought. Perfect theology is found in the incarnation, which is God made flesh. That's my note. <laughs> Perfect theology is not a book, and I would also say a library of books. Perfect theology is the life that Jesus lived. What the Bible does infallibly and inerrantly is point to Jesus, like John the Baptist did. The Old Testament tells the story of Israel coming to know the living God. But the story doesn't stop until we arrive at Jesus. It isn't Joshua, the son of Nun, who gives us the full revelation of God, but Yeshua of Nazareth. It's not the warrior poet David who gives us the full revelation of God, but the greater son of David, Jesus Christ. We understand Joshua and David as men of their time, but we understand Jesus Christ as the exact imprint of God's very being. And I would say God's only begotten son. Once we realize that Jesus is the perfect icon of the living God, we are forever prohibited from using the Old Testament to justify the use of violence. Using scripture as a divine license for the implement of violence is a dangerous practice that must be abandoned by we who walk in the light of Christ. If we hold to the bad habit of citing the Old Testament to sanction our own violence, How do we know that we won't use those texts to justify a new genocide? This isn't inflammatory rhetoric, but a legitimate question. It's a legitimate question because the Old Testament has been used by Christians to justify genocidal violence. This was the very justification used by European and American Christians during the American Indian genocide in North America. Here's just one example. In 1637, the English colonial leadership in Connecticut sought to launch a war of aggression against Pequot Tribe, P-E-Q-U-O-T. Please forgive me for probably terribly mispronouncing that, Pequot Tribe, for the sole purpose of acquiring their cultivated land. A war party of 90 settlers was raised and placed under the command of John Mason. When some of the colonists expressed moral qualms about launching an unprovoked attack on their peaceful neighbors, the matter was referred to their chaplain, Reverend John Stone. After spending the night in prayer, Reverend Stone was fully satisfied with Mason's proposal. At dawn, May 26, 1637, the armed soldiers attacked the main Indian village at Mystic Lake. In the central Connecticut River, killing an estimated 400 to 700 Native Americans, most of the dead were women and children, often historically the victims of ethnic cleansing, burned to death in their wigwams as the English slaughtered those who ran. Captain Mason describes the slaughter in these words. Thus was God seen in the mount crushing his proud enemies and the enemies of his people, burning them up in the fire of his wrath and dunging the ground with their flesh. It was the Lord's doings and it was marvelous in our eyes. Notice how John Mason attributes the massacre, the Pico Indians to the actions of God. What followed over the next few months was the virtual extinction of this tribe. But apparently, not all the colonists were comfortable with a Christian-led genocide. In his critically acclaimed history of Native America, The Earth Shall Weep, James Wilson writes, There also seem to have been colonists with misgivings about what happened. Captain Underhill was clearly replying to the criticism when he wrote, It may be demanded, Why should you be so furious as some have said? Should not Christians have more mercy and compassion? He echoes Mason by taking his defense from the Old Testament, presenting the English, typically, as the put-upon underdog in a crusade against evil. I would refer to you to David's war. When a people is grown to such a height of blood and sin against God and man. Sometimes the scripture declareth women and children must perish with their parents. We had significant light from the word for our proceedings. There you have it. The Bible used to bless barbarism. Genocide justified in the name of God. This kind of biblical justification of genocidal violence against the native peoples of North America continued throughout the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries. There is a sad and twisted logic to evoking God's will as a rationale for ethnic cleansing. If Captain Joshua can claim God commanded Israelites to kill Canaanite women and children, why can't Captain Mason and Captain Underhill claim God commanded English colonists to kill Pequot women and children? My point is if you leave the door open to justify Canaanite genocide, don't be surprised if modern crusaders try to push their way through that same door and then cite the Bible in their defense. We need to say something more responsible about the depiction of God endorsed violence in the Old Testament. We should acknowledge that in the late Bronze Age, Israel made certain assumptions about the nature of God, assumptions that now have to be abandoned in the light of Christ. This is abundantly clear from the Gospels that Jesus has closed the door on genocide just like he has closed the book on vengeance. I'll get back to this in a minute. I'm on page 35. One of the most chilling revelations as to how people in authority feel about God's wrath and God's vengeance and whether they are allowed to exact it for themselves came one day when, quite a few years ago, one of the things the pastors were doing were interviewing different people in the church so we could get to know them better. This included all different sorts of members of the church, men and women, short little interviews, and then a sermon afterward. And one time, a tall man came to the front dressed impeccably in a suit, real short military haircut, and he was given an interview too. He was a state policeman. And he said he was a Christian, and there weren't too many Christians in the state police, not as many as he wished there were, but one of the people who had really influenced him, he considered a true man of God, influenced him when he was in his early 20s, just starting out, and he said to him, remember, you are a tool of God's wrath, and he said that that was the single most influencing thing he had ever learned as he was starting out. And that sent absolutely chills down my spine and my blood ran cold because I thought, here's an officer of the law the state of Pennsylvania who, in his mind, feels in a sense like a kind of holy warrior with God on his side to exact God's wrath as he deems fit. And there's biblical evidence, really, um, in his mind that, that this is true. And his mentor who he greatly admires as a man of God, has told him, this is the truth, this is what you are, a tool of God's wrath. And we wonder why there's excessive force, and we wonder why people get shot and killed by police officers when excessive force isn't necessary. It really isn't any wonder when these people in power think of themselves as tools of God's wrath. But Jesus doesn't think of himself as a tool of God's wrath. Jesus doesn't say that we are tools of God's wrath, and that's what Brian Zahn gets into later. And this is a fantastic way of showing how Jesus has the last word on God's vengeance, and he has the final answer. If anyone gets to decide how vengeance is served, it's Jesus, the Messiah. I'll begin again on page 35. If we want to find a vengeful God of retributive wrath, meeting out violent justice upon his enemies who conveniently turn out to be our enemies. We can find that depiction of God in the Old Testament. This is not the only depiction of God in the Old Testament, but it's there. If we want a proof text to confirm that God is vengeful toward his enemies, we can find those texts if we know where to look. But is it how Jesus read the Old Testament? The Hebrew prophets frequently prophesied that the day of the Lord, Yahweh, would bring violent vengeance upon Gentile empires. But is this what Jesus did? Did Jesus endorse the call for divine vengeance on Gentiles? Remember, Jesus himself was a Jewish prophet. Jesus' preaching was the culmination of the Hebrew prophetic tradition. What began with Amos and Isaiah found its fullest and finest expression in Jesus of Nazareth. But Jesus demonstrates a new and creative way of reading and preaching Hebrew prophets. Before we look at an example of how Jesus read the prophets, it would be helpful to first encounter the big picture of the Hebrew prophetic tradition. The geography of Israel played a significant role in shaping ancient Hebrew theology. Israel was situated between the great southern and northern empires of the ancient Near East, with Egypt to the south and a succession of empires in Mesopotamia to the north. Israel was under constant threat from these superpowers. Israel was a small nation and extremely vulnerable to expansionist policies of those powerful empires. The biblical history of Israel was a long narrative of threat and oppression. The first Hebrews were enslaved by Egypt. Israel was forcefully deported to Assyria. Judah was sent to Babylon exile following the destruction of Jerusalem. Vulnerability was a key ingredient in forming Hebrew identity. But this vulnerability was also used by God to form Israel into a people with a keen sense of justice. Justice meaning things put to rights. That's my note. (laughs) One of the reasons the Old Testament talks so much about justice is because the Hebrew people often suffered injustice. When you're the top dog, you don't think so earnestly about justice. But if you're on the bottom, you have a different perspective. There's a reason Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King Jr. are probably the two best examples of American prophets. Their prophetic edges are, were sharpened on the cruel flints of slavery and segregation. The Hebrew prophetic tradition developed in the crucible of enduring threat, invasion, and oppression from Gentile empires. In this crucible of suffering, the theology of justice was forged, but it also produced the slag of vengeance theology in anticipation of a spirit anointed king who would bring justice by restoration of the ancient jubilee in which debts were canceled, slaves emancipated, and property inheritance restored. Isaiah gives this famous messianic prophecy. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, bind up the brokenhearted, and proclaim liberty to the captives, and release to the prisoners and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Isaiah's vision of the day of the Lord is that Messiah will bring justice of Jubilee to the Jews while bringing violent vengeance upon the Gentiles. Isaiah sees divine vengeance against Gentile empires as the crowning achievement of salvation. The Hebrew longing for justice and restoration was accompanied by a desire for revenge and retaliation. These long-oppressed people wanted their God to bring a day of vengeance upon their enemies. To put it more pointedly, Israel yearned for the day when they would have their turn up on top and be able to stick it to their former oppressors. This biblical theme of vengeance recurs regularly through the Psalms and the prophets. But retaliatory vengeance is not the only lens in the Old Testament for viewing Gentiles. There's also stories that seem to undermine vengeful thinking, subtext that subverts the retaliatory desire. In 1 Kings 17, we find the story of the widow. During the famine, God sends the Hebrew prophet Elijah to the land of Sidon, where a Gentile woman is given the miracle of a flour barrel that is never empty and a jar of oil that never runs out. This Gentile widow survives the famine through the miracle given by a Jewish prophet. This isn't just a nice story about God's supernatural provision. This is a subversive text about God's love for Israel's enemies. In Second Kings 5, the subtext of divine kindness bestowed upon Israel's enemies is pushed further when Elijah's successor, Elisha, heals the Gentile Naaman of leprosy. But Naaman wasn't just any Gentile. Naaman was the general of the dreaded Syrian army that had been threatening Israel. It's one thing to make a Gentile widow a sympathetic figure in a Jewish story, but it's another thing to do that with a Syrian general. Imagine an Israeli story where God heals a Hamas general, and you'll get some idea of what's going on with this story. Yet this is the genius of biblical subtext, because the story is skillfully told, the Jewish reader is seduced and rooting for the Syrian general. The reader can't help but be happy for Naaman. Of course, once you start feeling sympathy for Syrian generals, you might have to rethink Syrians altogether. In these two stories, Gentiles are made human and sympathetic figures. The Jewish reader doesn't want God's vengeance to fall upon these two Gentiles. Instead of thinking Gentiles deserve to be punished by a divinely orchestrated famine, the reader rejoices that the widow receives mercy from God. Instead of seeing Naaman as a two-dimensional villain deserving divine retribution, the reader sees Naaman as a real human being in need of God's kindness. In telling these two stories, the Hebrew Bible subverts a Jewish lust for vengeance. And I'll add, it's a human lust that we all have for vengeance. Because we hear their stories, these two enemies of God, in quotes, are no longer viewed as enemies. What is an enemy? An enemy is someone whose story you haven't heard. So the Bible supplies us with subtext stories to subvert our assumptions about enemies. Some of the best parts of the Bible are found in the subtext. And as we will see the Old Testament stories of the widow and Naaman the leper, with their subversion of vengeance, made a big impression on Jesus. Now let's go to the New Testament. In his Gospel, Luke tells us that after Jesus had been baptized by John in the Jordan, the completion of his 40 days of prayer, fasting in the wilderness... Then Jesus returns to Galilee to begin his ministry. After teaching and healing in the villages throughout Galilee, Jesus finally returned to Nazareth, his hometown. Jesus' newfound fame has preceded him. And there was a tremendous anticipation surrounding his homecoming. Jesus was, Nazareth was ready to embrace Jesus as their hometown hero. On the Sabbath, Jesus went to the synagogue and he was invited to read from the scriptures. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release to the captives and the recovery of the sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. All the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. Did you catch what just happened? Did you see what Jesus did? While reading the familiar passage of Isaiah 61, Jesus stopped mid-sentence and rolled up the scroll. It would be like someone singing the national anthem and ending with, or the land of the free! And everybody would be waiting for, and the home of the brave. Jesus didn't finish the line. Jesus omitted the bit about the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus edited Isaiah like this. In announcing that God's jubilee of liberation, amnesty, and pardon was arriving with what he was doing, Jesus omitted any reference to God exacting vengeance on Israel's enemies. In claiming that Isaiah's prophecy had been fulfilled in their hearing, Jesus is claiming to be jubilee in person. But the scandalous suggestion is that this jubilee is to be for everyone, even Israel's enemies. Jesus had edited out vengeance. And this gives us a key to how Jesus read the Old Testament. And lest we think Jesus' omission of the day of vengeance was simply an oversight or meaningless, Consider what Jesus says to the hometown crowd in the synagogue following his edited reading of Isaiah. Doubtless, you will quote me this proverb. Doctor, cure yourself, and you will say, do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine all over the land, yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Jesus is announcing the arrival of the Lord's favor, but he is emphasizing that it is for everyone, even Sidonians and Syrians even for Israel's enemies. Jesus takes the implicit subtext of mercy and makes them his explicit primary text. Jesus is making clear that in bringing the Jubilee of God, he is bringing it for everyone. How was this message of God's inclusive favor received in Nazareth? Not well, not well at all. Initially, Jesus' hometown spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his mouth. But as soon as Jesus made clear that He was closing the book on vengeance, that he would not endorse the idea of divine retribution on Israel's enemies. The crowd turned viciously against Jesus. When they heard this in all the synagogue, they were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. They wanted to kill him. Jesus refused to read Isaiah's Virgin of vengeance in the synagogue, just as he would refuse to be violent, vengeful Messiah in the model of King David and Judah Maccabee. And that ignited the rage of the crowd. It's amazing just how angry some people can become if you try to take away their religion of revenge. As long as Jesus announced that it was the time of God's favor, The crowd spoke well of him, but as soon as he made it clear that God's favor is for everyone, as soon as Jubilee was made inclusive and not exclusive, they tried to throw him off a cliff. Until we are captivated by the radical mercy of God, extended to all, we will cling to the texts of vengeance as cherished texts. We do this not for the noble sake of justice, but for the spiteful sake of revenge. With the incident in the synagogue of Nazareth, we learn that Jesus has closed the book on vengeance. The Word made flesh prevents us from rifling through the Bible to find texts of vengeance to fling upon our enemies. And I would add, to justify ourselves. If we try to hold on to a divine warrant for vengeance, Jesus passes through our midst and goes away. If we cling to vengeance, we lose Jesus. If we don't want this to happen, we need to learn to give mercy to our enemies. If we commit to loving our enemies, Jesus will abide with us and help us learn how to do it. Jesus didn't come to bring vengeance. He came to close the book on vengeance. Jesus announced the Jubilee good news of pardon, amnesty, liberation, and restoration. Jesus doesn't bless revenge. He blesses mercy and teaches that the mercy we show our enemies is the mercy that will be shown to us. God does not allow us to hope. That the book of divine vengeance will be closed for us, but left open and inflicted in full upon others. This is not how it works in God's economy of grace revealed by Jesus. Does that mean there is no divine judgment? Of course not. Certainly there is divine judgment, but it is a judgment based on God's love and commitment to restoration. The restorative judgment of God gives no warrant to a schadenfreuden yearning to see harm inflicted on others. Jesus has closed the book on the kind of lust for vengeance. When we read the story of Elijah and the widow, the story of Elisha and Naaman the leper, whom do we identify with? Are we Elijah? Are we Elisha? Probably not. More likely, we're the starving widow or the suffering leper. We are the outsiders in need of God's mercy. More provocatively, whom do we identify with in the conquest narratives of Joshua? Do we imagine ourselves as the conquering Israelites when we have more reason to imagine ourselves as the conquered Canaanites? To be blunt, if you're going to imagine divinely endorsed genocide, you should not imagine yourself as Joshua, but as the unfortunate Canaanite whose entire family and village have just been murdered. Instead of always seeing yourself as the cowboy, try to imagine being the Indian sometime. Imagine yourself as a peacoat Indian instead of the English colonist. Try being the Lakota Sioux instead of the American cowboy. Do that, and then ask yourself, how do you feel about justifying genocide in the name of God? We must constantly resist the temptation to cast ourselves in the role of those who deserve mercy while casting those outside our circle in the role of those who deserve vengeance. Jesus will have no part of that kind of ugly tribalism and triumphalism. Clinging to our lust for vengeance, we lose Jesus. But, but if we can say amen to Jesus closing the book on vengeance, then Jesus will remain with us to teach us the more excellent way of love. And those are the words from Brian Zond in his book Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, The Scandalous Truth of the Very Good News. It's thought-provoking stuff. A lot of times we see people who we feel should be on the deserving end of wrath and retribution and vengeance. So with those words to mull over, and hopefully you can read the whole book, I leave you today with a homework assignment. And that is to figure out who are the people who you have considered enemies. Who have you wanted to to seek vengeance on, and who have you wanted uh, revenge against? I thank you so much for listening to this episode. If this weekly work helps you in any way, I ask that you will share it with someone else, encourage someone else to listen, and consider sponsoring the show at just $1 a month, which would go a very long way, at patreon.com forward slash sparkmymuse. Head over there now to see some extras and unlock a lot of posts and work that I've done there. See you next week.